Canucks Central Wednesday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you. Glad you're tuning in. Whether it's on the Sportsnet app, Sportsnet 650, or on demand via the podcast, we do appreciate it. Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, your channels to find the Canuck Central podcast. We are presented by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. So much going on after another Canucks victory sat and one that this team absolutely needed and they will need to continue to find results as last night is a perfect indication of how difficult the playoff race is going to continue to be for the Canucks because Yes, you get a win, and you do get some help as Dallas loses, Vegas loses. So you have some good results there, but elsewhere, Edmonton gets a win. Nashville gets a win. So it's just like, no matter what, it's very difficult unless you have sustained success. And even with that sustained success, the Canucks have had under Bruce Boudreaux, they're still obviously on the outside looking in, but getting ever so close to being uh, into one of those playoff spots. I mean, any way you cut it, slice it, or want to discuss it, the Canucks are in a playoff race. Yep. Whether you like it or not, whether it's a long shot or not, that long shot has become not quite as long as we were talking about a bit earlier. And I saw Matt Lee from BCLC and Play Now Sports tweet out the playoff odds for the Vancouver Canucks. And we talked about this about a month oh. ago, remember? It was 6-1 to one and. You know, I said, I'm like, hey, if you want to get in on Canucks for playoffs, long odds, the time to get in on it is now. It's 6-1, to one, maybe 7-1. to one. Get those long odds because if they keep winning, those odds are going to shrink. Well, the Canucks now to make the playoffs, just over 2.36, I believe it was, that he yeah. had the Canucks at, which means it's almost even money. The Canucks Ooh. end up in the postseason at this point. I know some of the projections have them at, at almost 50%. Some have them at, at less than that, depending on what kind of uh, playoff predictive models you look at. But just from a pure point standpoint, it's all within striking distance. And especially if if Dallas continues its bit of a swoon here, losing some of these games, they lose one or two of those games in hand or even one, that bar is four or five points. And with Vegas, you win your next game, you're going to leapfrog Vegas all of a sudden. Yeah, They put themselves in a spot here, Dan, where you are in a playoff race. And I think the conversation becomes... Not about, you know, are they in the race or not? How long do they stay in the race or not? It's ultimately, how do you end up getting into the postseason at this point? Yeah, and they just um, still don't have a lot of room for error, as we know. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many teams in this race that you have to expect a couple of them are going to be hot, right? And carry themselves into one of those playoff spots. Edmonton, um, you know, <laughs> looked good for a lot of that game last night and then kind of let it slip away before ultimately winning in the end. Uh, Dallas has played really well for the most part, but they've got some injury trouble. Vegas, I think, is a team that I still expect to get hot at some point here, Sat, so there's going to be some discussion there. And, of course, there is the trade deadline and, and discussion there, but this is a team right now that's earned themselves the chance to see where this goes and how this plays out. And for all of the, well, they're only winning games because of Thatcher Demko. Well, what have we seen over the last little while? Demko is playing well, but not out of his mind as he has at other points this season. And the Canucks are still finding ways to win a lot of games and collect a lot of points. And I think that's even more of a sign of the progression that this team has taken over the last little while. Well, it's, it's you know, like we've been mentioning, and you've been mentioning quite a bit here, it's more than just goaltending, right? And, you know, for a large part, even of Boudreaux's success early on, you you took that, you looked at it and said, well, a lot of this is goaltending, right? What is this team's identity? I think one thing that is becoming very clear, too, when we've talked about this, that forecheck is part of their identity in a big way, right? We know that, you know, the Miller line's been bringing that all season long. But I thought the game that Bo Horvat had with yeah. Niels Hoaglander and uh, with Brock Besser... 
and not just being able to be productive yesterday, but just how they were grinding on the forecheck and, and how they helped keep the puck in the opposite end. I thought that was one of the better games Boa's had recently, right? And he's had a few good ones over the last little bit, but, you know, not a great game against Tampa. A lot of guys were kind of, I want to say no-shows, but they didn't quite bring what you needed to bring. But last night, I mean, if that line is able to forecheck that way, we know the top line does, we know the Lamical line does, well, that forecheck becomes a big part of your identity, right? And... We can even draw it down to to a couple of role players that have shown maybe maybe these guys personify the Bruce Boudreaux effect more than anything else because of how they're fitting in and how well they're playing. Two guys on different scales, but both guys that are known as supporting cast players, right? Yeah. Tanner Pearson, who we talked about a lot. And by the way, again, your anytime goal shout from Dan Riccio oh, cashed. Buddy on uh, uh, Tanner Pearson yesterday. This is why you got to listen to the pregame show. We give you winners. Every single time when we do prop bets, there's at least one or multiple winners. So, yeah, yeah it, it's it's a good run we got going on right now. And we're not pre-game. going for ultimate favorites. We're getting you a little bit of juice on top, too. Exactly. It's about trying to get you the best value possible and have a little bit of fun doing so, right? But Tanner Pearson, and then you add in a guy like Yuho Lamico. And when you have a game like you had the other night, you have the top line going with Miller, you have the bow line going the way they do, and they forecheck. And then you have a couple supporting cast players that are bringing it. It kind of shows that the team is capable of doing more than just relying on goaltending. I think one of the big things since the All-Star break, and we talked about this last night on the pregame, but when you have Miller, Pedersen, and Bo going, that does so much for your lineup. And, of course, you know, Pedersen wasn't in the lineup last night, and he practiced today, but is still more likely to play on Saturday than he is to play tomorrow Mm -hmm. uh, as it currently stands. But Boudreaux mentioned it in his first game. I remember behind the bench with Bruce Boudreaux before every Canucks game on the pregame show, he said to Brendan Batchelor, when you have Miller, Horvat, and Pedersen to play through the middle of the ice, you know, that can be pretty good. And he stuck with that for most of the time. But Miller's been the only player that's played consistently for Bruce Boudreaux since he came in. We know Pedersen took some time, finally got going, and now you have Horvat going, and that line that you have isn't going to change unless Tyler Mott gets traded. That fourth line that you have, unless Tyler Mott gets moved before Monday's deadline as a rental player, um... You know, that line is set and is not getting changed. So you've just got some consistency through your lineup. And now that you've got or have had Miller, Pedersen, and Bo playing a lot better, I think that's a big reason why you're seeing the goals start to tick up, the Canucks generating more offense. Their game isn't perfect, but they're definitely generating a lot more than they were earlier this season. The biggest issue... I see a lot of their key players having had, or at least some of their key players having had, is the consistency, right, that we kind of talked about. But as far as guys that drag you down or guys that don't help you, how many guys do they have that are passengers consistently? How many guys do they have up front that you look at and say, yeah, you probably don't want this guy playing, you know, In the Boudreaux era? Not not often. Maybe Chase on's the guy. Yeah. Right? You look at it and say, oh, maybe him. But even so, I mean, you've seen other guys come and go, and clearly he's still the guy that's been, you know, yeah. getting it done to some degree. And even so, um, even so, you go over the, the, the production and everything that's kind of happened with this team and what they've, what they've kind of accomplished so far. It does actually just come back to me to the guys being more consistent, mm-hmm. right? Because... I don't see a lot of guys that you look at and say, okay, this guy can play for your team. Are they perfect fits? You know, some guys aren't. You got to fix all that stuff out. But how many guys you look at and say, yeah, these guys are just passengers that that are not helping you reach your goal. And when you don't have guys that are dragging you down every time they're out there, it makes a big difference. Yeah. Like even Hoaglander and Pod Colson, they've kind of gone through the typical ebbs and flows of, of normal young players and... All of that is apparent at different points, but you're still getting something from them every once in a while, and they are so far down the depth chart of guys you're kind of counting on that it's not always noticeable. Um, You know, it's kind of like 
in a batting lineup, they're like your seventh and eighth hitters or something like that. And it's, you know, when, when everybody's struggling, you start to really notice it. But because the Canucks have had some big offensive contributions through their lineup, you know, Besser has had his moments where he's been hot under Boudreaux. Now Bo's getting going with four goals in his last three games. You have Miller, who's just the picture of consistency. Pedersen's gotten going. Garland's been doing his thing. Pearson has been solid and has been stapled next to Miller. And Boost Boudreaux said last night, you know, I think Pearson is bringing the best out of Miller. And that's why, you know, I've kept them together, essentially, is what he said after last night's game. So all of these things are kind of coming together. And I think that's a big reason why, you know, the Canucks find themselves where they are and also still have a big shot at this playoff contention. Well, now, it's building the identity. Yeah. Right. And it's like, what are you and what, what can you do that's repeatable? Yeah. And. W- this team earlier on wasn't doing anything repeatably, anything repeatable that was successful. Everything they did was unsuccessful, right? Like, what could they actually repeat on a consistent basis? And that forecheck and how you're generating your offense, and it's, and it goes beyond just your forwards, right? Last night on the postgame show, somebody called in and they made a terrific point. They said, you know, ever since Boudreaux took over, the Canucks have been one of the top teams in getting points from the blue line. And you go through those numbers, they're correct because they're generating more by having the defenseman jump in a bit more, being a bit more aggressive, right? You're generating your offense down low and you're seeing some of the defensemen come down a bit more and you're cycling the puck a bit better. That gets your demon more involved. But when you're getting those types of contributions, that's not just guys stepping up. It's guys being put in a position to play a certain style that allows them to be successful. And that's where, you know, oftentimes does come back to what Boudreaux has been able to do to really hone the guys in. Now, one thing... As, as much as I'm positive about where the forward group is right now and how they are playing, one interesting note over the last 10 games or so is you are seeing Oliver ekman Larson's numbers or minutes usage really tick down. He hardly played... On the penalty kill last night, Hughes has been the main left-sided defender now uh, on the PK for the Vancouver Canucks. And we talked about this. We flagged it a couple of weeks ago here on the show. OEL Myers are trending in a bit of a worrying direction. And that has really continued here, Sat. And I'm kind of wondering what is going on with Oliver ekman Larson more than anything else because he had been so good defensively for this team, but lately it's just not there. doesn't seem to be moving as well. Of course, you wonder if there's an injury of some kind as you get this late in the year. That's probably understandable or expected to some level, but how worried should we be about OEL, his play, the results there, and now seeing his minutes come down for the Canucks for most of the season, their number one matchup defender. Well, I mean, just to kind of go over some of the numbers as far as ice time goes, he was playing about 23 minutes a game. Yeah. The first 47 games of the season. The past 11 games or so, he's been playing just over 20 minutes a game. So his minutes have gone down over three minutes per game, which is sizable. And you go through this last little stretch here, he's had a number of times where he's played under 20 minutes and 1741 being the low minute mark that he had uh, last night against the Devils. Now some of that, hey, you get the lead in the third, you want to take it easy or whatever it is. But the word you mentioned with him, more than anything that stands out to me is labored. He does seem a little bit labored. Like we were remarking on how Oliver Ekman-Larsen despite all the concerns about his mobility and the trade and the contract, that he was moving really well and he skates well and, you know, he doesn't look like a guy that's lost a step and a guy that looks really slow out there. And it's not that he's getting turn-styled, but he doesn't have the same quickness right now, not the yeah. same agility right now. And his decision-making doesn't quite seem to be as good as it was in the past. And I wonder if that does come down to some sort of injury. Boudreaux it was, seemed at a bit of a loss when asked yes last night about OEL not featuring on the penalty kill and said, well, that's Brad Shaw's decision. I didn't really notice that. So we didn't get anything from the coach on it. But just based on his minutes and based on how he's played and what he kind of looks like, I wonder if he's battling some sort of an injury right now. Yeah, it definitely feels that way. But this is the thing. You know, this team 
hasn't had much injury trouble all year long. Mm-hmm. It's been actually quite remarkable how few injuries they've had to deal with on a uh, from a star player standpoint. You know, they have had some, but not a ton. And of course, during the Boudreaux era, they have had some of the COVID absences and they were staggered mm-hmm. a little bit. So it always felt like one or two of your big players were out of the lineup for at least a couple of games. This is about as healthy a Canucks season as we've seen in recent memory, Sat, right? And this might be one of the tipping points in this playoff race because they just don't have a ton of depth. On the left side of defense, there's not a lot there if you need to give OEL a couple of days off or something like that, you know? Right now, you've been running... Brad Hunt out there as your third pair, and that's a perfect spot for him. He's fine there, but if you have to elevate him, that could be an issue. And then who's there on the left side beyond that? That's a concern. You have Pedersen out of the lineup, and when you're playing Miller and Bo through the middle of the ice, you know, what does the rest of your lineup look like on the wings? And you essentially have a fourth line last night of Patan, Podkolzin, and Chase on that are really just getting, what, barely any minutes, and and you're hoping that they just don't get scored on when they're out there. They were fine last night, but, you know, you're not expecting a lot out of that lineup either. And if that was a tougher opponent and the game was a bit closer into third or whatever, or you weren't, you know, taking the lead the way the Canucks were, that line probably doesn't get out there as much as they did. Well, as as we saw against Tampa Bay and Washington, right? Essentially, Boudreaux went down to nine, nine forwards, and it was Hoaglander, Podkolz, and Chason that were pretty much the ones that were left out when they went uh, to that shrunken lineup. A um, little bit different when Pedersen was out Sunday against Tampa Bay, of course. But, you know, this is the thing with this team. There's just not a lot of depth here. Well, I mean, you know, so I, I think actually, to be fair, I think they have a decent amount of depth, the guys that can play. Yeah. But as far as difference makers on the back end, that's where it kind of falls short, right? Yeah. Like, I think up front, actually... Listen, they're not the deepest team up front, obviously not, right? But because Miller can play center, because Horvat can play center, having Pedersen out for a couple of games, it was tough against Tampa. But with Bo playing the way he did last yeah. night and that line playing the way they did, well, you had two top lines going, right? So I think up front, they can actually get away and piece it together if you miss one key guy here and there, depending on the opponent. And you I can think handle that, it. You, can, you have decent depth up front to handle those sort of things. What they don't have is that kind of depth on the back end to really change things around. Like, what's what's been... What's been uh, the motto on the back end? It's either Luke Shen with uh, Quinn Hughes or Hughes with Hamannick whenever that's happened. Or it's been OEL with Myers or OEL with Pullman. Like yeah. Those have been the combinations. There aren't, haven't been too many other combinations thrown out there outside of necessity when a couple of righties have to play with, with one another on the back end. And especially type of defenseman, for instance, right? That's why what Brad Hunt's been able to do this year, and at least what he's done these past seven games, picking up five goals and two points, has been absolutely invaluable for this hockey team. To be able to get that type of production on the back end from a guy that's just a depth player for you, right? The issue and the concern I have more than anything, though, is those minutes... Do you have a shutdown pair that, as the season goes on here, that can do what those guys were doing earlier this season, OEL and Myers? And that type of quality is what they're lacking. And what they're lacking is even a number five defenseman that can maybe shadow as that type of a player. And so far, a guy like Hamannick has not shown any ability to play up the lineup. The last yeah. game he got a chance against Tampa to play with Quinn Hughes, he got, he got absolutely lit up. And he had a bad turnover, which led to one of the goals. And that's all she wrote, and he lost that hockey game, right? Who can handle those minutes? Pullman struggles, and we'll see when he comes back. He struggles playing big minutes. So I think up front, you can get, get away with a key guy being away on the back end. It makes it really, really difficult if that OEL and Myers pair can't find their game, especially if OEL doesn't feel healthier and get back to what he was like a few weeks ago. So uh, I wonder if we see a change because even though OEL, his minutes are down, he's still taking the biggest opposition, you know, the biggest opponent as a matchup most nights. Like even last night, his most common uh, opposition on the ice was Jack Hughes and Jasper Bratt. Um, Quinn played a little bit against those guys too, but OEL took the majority share of shifts against those players. 
I wonder from a deployment and a usage standpoint if we start to see that change where Quinn and Shen start to get the big minutes against uh, the top opposition of the opponent. I, I can see that happening, but how much do you sacrifice from your overall transition and offense if you are using them in that way? Yeah. And that's the thing you have to kind of also consider here because when Quinn Hughes is on the ice, the amount of offense you're generating is unbelievable, right? And do you want to change the course of how he's playing mm-hmm. and put him into a different spot. I guess what you could say is, hey, play your game, doesn't matter who you're out against. But clearly, if you're playing the other team's top lines, you're going to have to be somewhat more conservative about how you move up ice and what type of decisions you make, right? But if you have to, you might have to consider it here. Yeah. Because going through this this list, especially on the right side, they really need one of those guys, whether it's Hamannick or when Pullman comes back, to, to give them something. And those guys haven't been able to give them anything but, but third pair of minutes. And, you know, a guy like Cal Burrows, God bless him. I, I think everybody really likes his, his toughness and what he's brought. And, you know, he has a contract for next year, too. He's, he's gained value, whether he stays or, or in another way. But even him, anytime he's played bigger minutes, and I went through the numbers showing the differentials, scoring chances, high danger ones, when he's playing 16, 17 minutes, 15 minutes, he's a positive player. Yeah. Once he inches over 18, it goes the other way in a hurry, right? The numbers don't really lie about it. For all his toughness and and all the character and and all his effort, he's not going to be able to handle big minutes, or at least hasn't shown the ability to do that quite yet. So who's going to be that guy that steps up? Out, Out of That's my concern here. If OEL doesn't get his game back, and that pairing can find his game, is there anybody else on this blue line not named Quinn Hughes or Luke Shen that can maybe play some minutes for you and hold their own? Uh, We haven't seen it, right? We have not seen it, and uh, that's a tough part. If um, OEL continues to uh, struggle a little bit, what do you do in that spot? Uh, We'll see how uh, they continue to manage it. So far, you know, they... uh, I've only had one situation in the Boudreaux era where they've lost three games in a row and not gotten a point uh, out of some of those matchups. So they've been ever so consistent and at least collecting points where they can. Um, All right. I did want to get to the Thomas Hurdle deal uh, just before the break. And we're going to have David Pinota, our uh, insider, joining us uh, in the 5 o'clock hour here today. We'll discuss a little bit more of it with uh, Pags, but... Hurdle gets eight years and 8.1375 on the average annual value from the San Jose Sharks. And a lot of our listeners are coming into the Dunbar Lumber text line wondering if this is a comp for JT Miller. Yeah, I I think it absolutely is a comp, right? And Age-wise, they're pretty similar. Mm-hmm. Um, one year younger, Tomas Hurdle. Right now, he's slated to be UFA, a bit different situation. But that's ballpark. Yeah. Right? I mean, to me, the total money is what matters here. The total money comes out in at over $60 million mm-hmm. for Tomas Hurdle. And I think if you're looking at any sort of a JT Miller extension, the total money has to be close to $60 million probably. I think that's the number to look at. Tomas Hurdle got $60 million. Now, if you want to bake in that Miller is a little bit younger, you know, a little bit older and all that sort of stuff, and you're trying to sign him a year out and everything, do we talk about that number being maybe $58 million or something like that? Could you get him there? But I think the Hurdle contract is very much going to be something the, the Miller camp would point to this offseason and say, that's a starting point for us. Well, they're already using... Um... Or, you know, we've heard the Zabinajad comp. Yep. The, the thing about it, Miller hasn't played center all that long, mm-hmm. you know. Zabinajad's been a career center. If, if Miller's numbers were where they are uh, and he was still playing wing for the most part, you know, we're talking about probably a guy that's in the seven range. But mm-hmm. since he's played center and excelled so much through the middle of the ice, all of a sudden I think you're seeing Miller in the eight range and it's going to be hard to keep him under that with the way that he keeps going even last night you know three assists and it's like (laughs) he should have had five goals to go along with those three assists well i i think the number like i've been mentioning for a while here i'm not sure how comfortable the canucks are going to be to get into the eight or nine range yeah but and i know it seems minor when we're talking about a few hundred k really you know 250k 750k or maybe a million or whatever but i think the number 7.75 
could be something that Canucks look at and they're like, we'd love to have him under eight. We don't want to pay him more than Quinn because for, for us, we want Quinn to be, you know, yeah. the guy with the highest number or whatever. Now, do you feel bad if you have to go a little higher for Miller? Maybe not, depending on how badly you want him. But the number I keep going back to is 7.75. Because if you go eight years with 7.75, and again, this is where term comes in, the total money comes out to $62 million. Yeah. Which is comparable. Again, to me, the number, you got to be in the 60 million range total money. So how do you make that work? Can you get that number under eight? Are you comfortable going eight years, right? But if I'm JT and if I'm his camp, especially with Zibanejad, what he got, especially what Tomas Hurdle got, why would you want to settle for less than 60 million total? The uh, Canucks, too, with their cap situation, probably prefer a lower cap hit. Should they keep Miller? And maybe you're sacrificing a, an extra year or two on term to keep the cap hit a little bit lower. Potentially. I mean, Where, whereas if, options. if you were to want six years, maybe you know that's when it gets into the eight range but uh, or, or even more than that. But if you are uh, going max term into eight years, then you can bring that average annual value a little bit down. It's Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. We'll get into that a little bit more in hour two of the program. But coming up next, Kevin Woodley, our goalie guru, In Goal Magazine and NHL.com. What do the Canucks do with Thatcher Demko? And how often should they be using him? Plus, where are things at with Yaroslav Halak? That's next on Canuck Central. Canuck Central presented by your local Grip Auto and Tired. Quality service, friendly advice waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Kevin Woodley is going to join us uh, here in a moment. Uh, Bo Horvat had a big night last night, the captain of your Vancouver Canucks. couple of goals. And if you head over to Sportsnet 650 on Instagram, your chance to win an autographed Bo Horvat, Adidas jersey, and a Google Nest smart speaker. Uh, just head over to Sportsnet 650 on Instagram and find the rules and what you need to do to be a contestant for an autographed Bo Horvat jersey and a Google Nest home speaker. The captain um, you know, was uh, cheery last night, as, as he would be after a game like that. I felt the Canucks really needed that from Bo. We talked about it in the pregame set with Pedersen out. It's going to put more pressure on Bo to have a big night. He obviously did, but it was also like, how he did it you know game was 2-2 Canucks were on their heels a little bit Bo makes that turnover scores that big goal start the third gets that shorthanded goal to really ice the game huge moments for Bo and listen what did we say you mentioned it before the game I mentioned you need a strong performance from Bo you want to win this hockey game if Bo shows up and Miller's lines show up you're going to win this hockey game like you're you're going to be fine as long as these guys show up and man he had a great hockey game give him credit and and I don't think you can be uh, you can move the goalposts on this one and be like, well, it was only against New Jersey. Hey, he needed he needed to step up, and he did. You found a way to win the game. Now do it again on Thursday against the Wings. Uh, let's bring in our next guest. It is uh, Kevin Woodley of Ingoal Magazine and NHL.com, our goalie guru. How's it going, Kevin? It's going good, boys. It's going really good. How are you? Uh, we're, we're doing great, man. It's, uh, you know, Canucks are in the thick of a playoff race as much as none of us really expected it a few months ago, but here we are. And, you know, kind of what's happened recently, um, is while Demko isn't playing poorly, you know, they haven't been getting the, uh, goalie standing on his head constantly to win games. They're outscoring their opponents, in some of these games. Uh, what, what have you made of Demko's play recently? You know, it's funny because the, the, it, it's hard not to see some signs of slippage. Um, and I look for in, you know, more in the details, like the amount mm-hmm. of times where, you know, play comes down the wing and, and you see sort of how he retreats with it, what they call reverse tracking, tucks into his post, comes across as it goes behind the net, like all the things that you expect to be just dialed and not missing. 
like the number of times where he goes into his post and, and he just misses and all of a sudden his pads inside of his post and he's swimming for a half a second. And actually very rarely has it cost him, but I just look for more of those as signposts of maybe fatigue, little details that, you know, frankly, he doesn't miss on if he's a hundred percent or misses on a lot less often. Um, and it's not like they've caught up with him in goals. Uh, you know, I mean, sometimes guys are going to make good shots. Guys are going to make good plays. I mean, this team is still giving up a fair bit, um, a lot of quality. And it's interesting because, yeah, his numbers have slipped a little bit. So I kind of thought I saw the first signs of, of slippage in that Nashville game. So I ran his adjusted numbers from that was February 1st. Well, guess what? His adjusted save percentage is still plus 1.7%, 7th in the NHL, which is kind of where he is overall. So let's move the dial to the past month, February 15th. That drops down to plus 0.6%. So in the last month, that's dropped a full percentage point, but still in the top 20 in the National Hockey League. And so in the last, and then we we move it to sort of March 1st, so kind of a couple-week sample, um, where I think we'd expect him to have dropped significantly. And it's around the same. But a, a against the rest of the league, it's still flirting with the edge of the top 10. So I think the standard is just so bloody high and he helped set that himself mm-hmm. and Markstrom before him. Like the standard of excellence is so high that the slips are noticeable. Um, there are teams around the league that would give, uh, well, I don't know what they give. I guess we might find out in a couple of days at the trade deadline. I was going to say give their right arm for the goaltending that Thatcher Demko is giving the Canucks right now, and we look at it as, you know, not elite Demko. Because, again, the standard is Vesna caliber level. And still on the season, he's in, you know, sort of top five, six, has slipped a little bit. But I, I just think, it, like, it, it's not what we're used to. And so we can see that, whether it's what I see or what everybody sees overall or what the numbers tell us. But it's not maybe as dramatic as some of the conversations I'm hearing around him make it out to be. It's still goaltending that, you know, frankly, the Leafs would kill for. <laughs> right. I mean, and the, I think the biggest question that, that we kind of had and we were kind of trying to figure out here, especially on the postgame show the other night and last night, okay, h- how do you get the best out of Demko the rest of the season and how much rest do you have to get him? Because, you know, you're right. It's maybe not as, you know, as dramatic as some people make it out to be, but the question is, does it get worse and worse if he doesn't get enough rest as the season goes on and the games get tougher and tougher as far as, you know, the the odds, the stakes heading into those games, especially after the trade deadline, a couple back-to-backs. So when we're looking at the two back-to-backs coming up, the first set here on this weekend and the other set midweek next week on Wednesday and Thursday, how would you go about using Demko and the backup situation over this next five-game stretch? Well, okay, so first of all, what I'd do is I might defend a little better. And you know me, I'm always <laughs> trying to bail the goalies out. But the one, no, honest to God, guys, yeah. the one number I, I, that I didn't throw at you there is in the past month, as much as I'm looking at his adjusted numbers dipping, it's relative to an expected save percentage that has gone all the way down to 878, one of the lowest in the league over that stretch. Like, so they are outscoring, like people are saying, oh, they're outscoring, they're not getting elite goaltending anymore, but they're outscoring it. A large part of that is they're outscoring their mistakes as well. And we're still seeing in these moments, like even that Tampa game, as much of a lot, a lot of it was early, like Tampa still generated four expected goals, right? Like he was still he still chipped away, he still added two goals saved above expected to his total. In the past month, his expected save percentage is 878. So tidying things up there would be a little helpful, especially when it comes to the amount of duress that puts on him. Beyond that, like I cannot say um, how important this next Yaroslav Halak start is going to be uh, over the weekend. And I'm curious to see how they handle this. Do they give this the Andre Vasilevsky and play Demko tomorrow night and say, hey, well, he gets extra time off if we save him till Sunday against the Sabres and, and put out Yaroslav Halak against the Flames, as much as that might be counterintuitive, your best goalie against your toughest opponent. Um, we saw it work for Andre Vasilevsky. So that's one he definitely needs off. I think the next back-to-backs later in the week, as much as they're off Monday and Tuesday, I don't think you can run him out there Wednesday and Thursday. Back-to-back with travel, altitude in Colorado, then to Minnesota, and then two nights later to Dallas. It's not so much maybe he could survive the back-to-back, but, man, you're getting diminishing returns by the time you hit Dallas, which is an important game for three and four. And that's kind of how I look at the rest of the schedule. Like, it kind of spaces out there for a bit. But, again, back-to-back, Vegas on the 6th, the Coyotes on the 7th, 
and the Sharks at home on the 9th in April. It's not just can he play the back-to-backs. Maybe it's what you're getting in the third and four, and that's the same there. So, I mean, outside of the last two games of the season, if they're must-win on the 28th and 29th back-to-back with travel, and you absolutely have to have them playing them for both, I don't see how you run them out there for both the back-to-backs without expecting some diminishing returns. And if you can get a better performance, uh, if you can get the type of performance, and it's funny because – I think the last two starts, and understandably so, because they've been horrendous, have really sort of almost tilted the narrative on Yaroslav Halak almost too far. And I, I, and I get it. So, like, you don't just need great starts. You just need Yaroslav Halak to give you what he gave you right up until his last two. Like, his numbers were identical, both adjusted and raw to Thatcher Demko before that Islanders game. And watching practice this week, it's kind of been hard not to notice how much he's dug in a little bit more with Ian Clark and the work he's putting in, uh, you know, especially in the movement drills, just really seems to be uh, committed to sort of grinding on some of these things as he tries to find his form. He's a guy who's always been able to play his way into form, and now that he doesn't have that luxury, um, I've just sort of seen a sort of renewed commitment to some of that work and some of those movement patterns. Um, that maybe wasn't there earlier because it never needed to be there in his career earlier. So if you can get a good start out of him on the weekend, boy, does that that free you up to start making decisions on, like, forget the back-to-backs. You know, are we getting diminishing returns to the point where the other guy is a better option because when we use him, then the next time we come back with Thatcher, we're getting 100% Thatcher. We're not going to keep chipping away from 90 to 80 to, you know what I mean? Because eventually that dam's going to burst. Um, it's a lot of hockey uh, down the stretch here. It's a situation he's never been in before. I think he's managed it really well, but if we can see little things here and there already, uh, the chances of it you know, going the other way and starting to get better without a little more rest are just, you know, I mean, inherently seems unlikely. He can do it, but you know, it seems like the more you're able to sort of balance that, and it's not just the rest. It's the work with Clark, like the details that he likes to grind on and make sure they're sharp. Uh, the inability to do that when you're giving them these off days, eventually that'll start to catch up and you'll see him miss more of his spots and not, you know, not sort of get to plays ahead of it the way he was earlier in the season. There's also the uh, question mark if uh, Yaroslav Halak's next start with the Canucks may be his last start given Monday is the March 21st deadline, trade deadline. Um, it sounds as though there would be some teams interested, but uh, still the question mark of whether or not he's willing to waive the no-move clause. What do you know? Yeah, I, I, I still think that would depend on the teams interested. I was a little surprised to see that, that there are, and I don't mean that as, you know, uh, that's nothing against Jaroslav Halak. I just, my impression before is that there haven't been a lot of teams that have been interested to date. Uh, I know, you know, you guys have heard me say this from day one, like the family's here, he's very settled. Yeah. There have been those questions about whether he'd wave. Um, but, you know, short of a chance to play more here, and I don't get the impression that, that that's going to happen or that he believes that's going to happen, I do believe if it's a chance to play more and behind the right team that he would go, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just not sure that those opportunities have been there to this point. And so if that changes, um, then, yeah, like I, I do think there is a good chance that he would accept the trade, you know, maybe not to end just any team. Um, but, you know, depending on what that option is, if it includes a chance to play more, if it includes a chance to get back to showing what he can be, what he has been for his entire career when sort of, I don't want to say used properly, because that would imply that, I, you know, I'm, I'm calling the Canucks out for not using properly. I understand why they've run Demko out here. They've been in desperation mode since Bruce arrived. You know, and for the longest time, Demko's been one of the best goalies mm-hmm. in the league up until this last little while. So I get why they did it, but, you know, to get the best out of Yaroslav Halak, he hasn't been used appropriately if that's your goal. And so I think the opportunity to get into that situation is something that, you know, I, I believe pretty strongly would appeal to him to the point where I, I, I believe he would at least consider waiving that no-trade clause. And We'll just have to see whether that opportunity even presents itself because my understanding to this point is it just hasn't been an option and so it's never been something he's had to formally consider in terms of we have something that could work for you. 
Well, and in reality, those types of uh, opportunities are probably not going to be there for backup goalies until you get a bit closer to deadline, right? Maybe the weekend, and maybe that's going to be a time where we can hear some more stuff. And something else that's been brought up by people, and I totally understand why fans ask this question. If you want to look at it outside the box, especially with how well Spencer Martin has played, I understand them saying, hey, why not just call him up? You can do it and have him play ahead of Yaro Halak. But can you walk us through why that may not be a real- realistic option under the current circumstances? Well, especially if you do have, if they are still seriously making an effort to, to like, like you're not moving him without a good start here, right? Like I think it's as much as I can look at the numbers up until those last two, and again, that Islanders game changed everything. Um, the numbers look atrocious right now, but I thought he did a really nice job of battling through unfamiliar circumstances. Like even earlier in the year, once every two weeks, that is a lot less than he's used to playing. Um, and then he, he misses an entire month. And I thought it wasn't pretty, especially early in games. He, he's a guy who reads the game really well. And sort of that, that's something that can take a little time each game to sort of find your footing with. Um, so there were some times where it looked a little scrambly. It looked a little ugly, uh, but he managed to dig in, and, and I thought I thought play really well up until those past two starts. And so, you know, whether teams are willing to really look at that, whether they have access to the numbers that sort of paint a picture where this guy was, you know, flirting with top ten in the league and adjusted save percentage before that, before those last two starts, um, you know, like I don't know how many teams are going to look that far. So. Um, you needn't, but if you bury him now, if you lose him completely now, you've lost him for the season. And so I think you, at the very least, um, especially if you hold out hopes to to find a spot, is you need to get him in there one more time. And like I said, to his credit, like it, you, like if you're watching the goalies in practice or in even in morning skate this week, and I haven't been there all week, but since this home stand started, I've been there a couple times and enough to watch. Like you're seeing a difference. And you're seeing a guy who looks really motivated to have that type of start. So, um, you know, again, if you can get that guy back, then there's value there. And if you have another start like the last one, then, yeah, like, hey, you're probably not going to be able to move it, but you still need to have wins. And what Spencer Martin gave you, like that, I think that after the trade deadline, if nothing's changed and he's still running 650 over the past, you know, now it'll be three starts coming out of the weekend then I think that's a move that I, I, you know, I think they would probably consider. Um, but at this point, the sort of damage that would do in terms of trying to get one more good start out of this guy and see what that gives you, either the return of Yaroslav Halak and a great option or the option to move him and get off that number next season in terms of the cap hit, uh, you gotta, you got to sort of give him that opportunity. It's been funny uh, seeing uh, Leafs Twitter a little bit over the last uh, 24 hours. Uh, they are you ready think they to. They found Dominic Cash. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Schalgren gets a uh, shutout in his first career start uh, in net for the Leafs. Played well. I think it was a 35 save shutout over the uh, Dallas Stars. Um, but uh, uh, is, is this the savior that, that Leafs fans hope they've uh, all of a sudden run into? Well, it's, it's interesting. I was kind of hoping to see the the numbers on last night's game through through clear sight system and they're not quite in my my sort of poor man's version of it i don't have the you know like the teams get it ahead of me obviously and so last night's numbers for the leafs game are i don't have them in front of me but man like i i saw the quote unquote highlight package that was running off of that game from a goaltending perspective and it was all like clear sighted looks from distance shots that just shouldn't go in and frankly, there was a lot of loose change on a lot of those shots that frankly shouldn't have been there. Like, so like, I think even the save totals um, were probably inflated by rebounds that never, that shouldn't have been second opportunities. And that's not the critique. I mean, the kid had a shutout for the Maple Leafs with all the pressure around goaltending in his first game. So maybe that's some of the jitters, but it is incredible. Like either overreaction, uh, let's see you do it against the Carolina Hurricanes. Let's see if some of the things I saw that were, you know, clear signs of exposure get exposed or if you Mm -hmm. get away with them for a second game. But also the other part of this is, like, this is what competent goaltending looks like. Because, like, I'm not saying it was terrible. I'm just, like, the the sort of image that's been painted from Leafs Nation based on it, I was like, that doesn't match what I watched. So, like, this isn't savior time yet. 
that said, like a goalie that just actually knows how to go into his posts and seal the short side and not get caught swimming three feet outside of his crease behind a team that, you know, is top 10 defensively in the National Hockey League and is cut down on the high danger chances. Um, that's all you need. And they're not getting that. Like Peter Morazic in that uh, outdoor heritage classic game, like everybody, everybody looks at the last two goals, especially the sharp angle goal, which was just like, I mean, his post plan that was, I find, I struggle to find a word beyond atrocious to describe it. Um, but even before that, like everyone gave him a pass on the, the centering pass that went in off TJ Brody. I was like, I oh, had no chance on that. He wasn't in the net. Like, he <laughs> yeah. wasn't in the net. Like, that is a pass out of the corner from the goal line, yeah. and he's squared up committing to the butterfly on a non-threat shot, and he's not even in the net. And by the time he grabs and adds and rotates and turns, the puck's in the net. Like, that's, that, that's I don't know what's happened there, but he looks so lost and out of sorts. He's always been a goalie that relies on rhythm and, and athleticism too much, in my opinion. That's why the peaks and valleys have always been, you know, bigger than, than they need to be, but he still at least had the peaks right now. Like, I don't even know what he's doing in there. Like we're talking about, you know, and this sounds hypercritical and it is like, we're talking about elements of goaltending that man, like triple A Bantam kids are doing this better. <laughs> You're right. Right. Like, and they're not facing NHL shots. So like, I'm not pretending it's the same thing, mm-hmm. but like, like there's not a single part of them that's in the net. And it, it makes no sense. It's like he's lost. Like, it's like there is no foundation for him right now. And there's nothing to root himself in and anchor himself in. And he's just out there playing street Mm -hmm. hockey and the Leafs don't even need spectacular. They just need stable and he's unable to deliver it. And the more it goes on, the less, the less certain I am he'll, he'll be able to like, it's, it's quite remarkable to watch. And, and it's funny too, because he gets a pass on some of it. You know, and I'm just like, no, like, you can't give a pass on that. Like, there's no way you should be outside your net in a butterfly on a centering pass out of the corner to the point where it can hit something and you're not even, you're still not even filling any net. Mm-hmm. Like, if it deflects and goes top shelf, yeah. But even get a push. Like, there's so much wasted movement and inefficiency and unnecessary overplaying that, oh, I mean, see, I'm exasperated now. You've exasperated me. That's what the Leafs goaltending has done. Just super frustrated all of us. I mean, but I understand what you're saying, and the reality is it's not easy to address goaltending in season, Uh, not only finding a guy, but then when you find a guy, how that guy fits in. I mean, out of all the positions in hockey, isn't that the most unpredictable one and the hardest one to make work if you make a trade deadline deal to bring in a goaltender? Yeah, because there's so many factors, right? And, and Ryan Miller kind of became the poster child for this when he was traded to St. Louis in 2014. And sort of, you know, it's funny because I've talked about this with him multiple times over the years. It's almost like he became my go-to every trade deadline since. So I apologize to you, Ryan Miller, for every time I bring it up. But, like, it, like there's sort of a checklist, right? Like, so if a guy's never been traded before, he's only played behind one team in one place. That's a giant red flag. That was the case with Ryan Miller. If a guy plays a game that has a lot of rhythm and feel and skating and extra movement. In other words, like there's a sliding scale for everyone, but if he's a lot more rhythm and feel and a lot less technical, like to me, technique breeds consistency and technique is where your foundation lies. And you're seeing Peter Morazic's lack of it right now. But if you've got a guy who's a real technical guy, like it's point A to point B, um, don't rely so much. Like you can get away when you have that foundation without being on your A game and pucks are just going to hit you because you're good at being in the right spot all the time. You don't rely on a read to get there ahead or to make the right read or the right sort of anticipation to be to play. You're just always kind of in position, maybe a little more conservative with your depth, that type of goaltender. So if, if you're a guy like that, I think it's an easier, somewhat easier transition than, say, Ryan Miller, who at the time was playing a lot more flow-style game. I remember Miller here um, when they had the big six-foot-eight Russian defenseman, uh, Triampkin, and it was like three months into Triampkin being here, and there was a post-game, and Ryan's like, yeah, I feel like I'm finally getting comfortable reading off him. And I'm like, it took me aback, and I remember going back to him later. I'm like, really? Like three months, and you're still trying to read off your defenseman? But there are some goalies that rely that much on sort of that anticipation. It can take that long to gain the trust 
and to feel comfortable behind an, you know, a new group of defensemen. Now, Miller changed his play. By the end of his career, you could have traded him, and we've talked about this too, you could have traded him at the deadline, and he would have adjusted much quicker than he did at the time. But he was a rhythm and flow guy, and he went to a team that didn't want him to play that way. So there are styles and systems that fit. I think you can run numbers. When I look at ClearSight and I look at the 34 different points of data, I can look at strengths and weaknesses of a goaltender statistically and compare that to the types of chances a team gives up. I know teams have used this in free agency and have had some of the better free agent signings over the past couple of years by sort of matching goalie A with Team X and his strengths to what they give up and what they don't give up to their weaknesses. I think you can mitigate it somewhat, but there are a number of red flags that you have to be careful because at the end of the day, well, how many games are left in the season, right? Usually by the trade deadline, you're looking at 20 games. And most goalies will tell you it takes them 15 to get comfortable behind a new team. Well, unless you're playing that guy every night, that's not a big window. And if that sort of starts out on the wrong foot and rolling, that snowball gets rolling down the hill in the wrong direction, uh, by the time you hit the playoffs, again, Ryan Miller in St. Louis, it, that snowball's rolling pretty big down the hill, and it's tough to sort of stop it and get it going the other way. So it is tough. It's why we haven't seen, I don't think, a lot of big goalie trades. It's why I have a lot of questions. Put Marc-Andre Fleury in Edmonton, and I think he'd be great. Put Marc-Andre Fleury back in Vegas, where, by the way, the problem is the fact they lean so heavily on elite goaltending because they're horse crap defensively compared to their, their narrative and reputation. I think he'd be fine. Put him behind Toronto where he doesn't see any shots or feel the rhythm of the game. Put him behind Washington where they're a pretty tight defensive team. I'm less certain Marc-Andre Fleury gives you the type of goaltending he has in busier environments. Those are questions that are really tough to answer at this type of year and why I think we team, see teams hesitant to take risks because they don't know themselves. Kevin, we uh, appreciate the time as always. Thank you for this. My pleasure, guys. Uh, there is Kevin Woodley, the best in the business, analyzing goalies. And we are lucky to have him on Canuck Central every single Wednesday. Uh, this trade deadline update is brought to you by Kintech Footwear and Orthotics. Do your feet hurt? Talk to a fitting expert today at 11 Lower Mainland locations or online at kintec.net. Kevin talked about Yaroslav Halak. Could be some interest there. It would have to be the right fit for him to accept any kind of a trade. Obviously, the Canucks wouldn't go to Halak unless there was uh, significant interest and maybe an offer on the table that made sense anyhow. So uh, that's what it would take over the course of the weekend. But uh, it does look like the Calgary Flames are adding Callie Yarncroke to their team pending a trade call but uh, that is just coming down the line per several reports. Calgary Flames getting better, potentially, ahead of their visit to Vancouver this weekend. It's Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. This is Canuck Central.